The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're exploring the evolving frontier of extreme weather and how it's influenced by our warming planet. This is Science for the People, and I'm Desiree Shell. With me is Catherine Miles, whose work frequently appears in Outside Magazine, Popular Mechanics, History, and countless other publications. Catherine currently serves as writer-in-residence for Green Mountain College and as a faculty member in Chatham University's low-residency MFA program. She's also the author of Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, how much did you know about weather science before you wrote this book? You know, I grew up in a, a weather junkie household. We always had the weather channel on, and I, I grew up in the Midwest in, in the United States, so lots of tornadoes and severe thunderstorms. So I was always sort of aware of weather, but not the type of weather like a hurricane um, and not the science necessarily that was involved. And so one of the big challenges for me going into writing Superstorm was really trying to not just learn the science, but learn ways to convey it to readers in a way that would be enjoyable as well as informative. And how much did you know about, I guess, how science tries to inform public policy and all the inherent challenges that that involves? Well, I think of myself as an environmental writer. All of the journalism that I do has an environmental focus. So science is always really foregrounded in my mind. Um, and one of the reasons that I went into this line of work is I really wanted to find a bigger way to make an impact. I went through a very traditional PhD and I was doing scholarship. And, you know, if five people read something I wrote, I was really excited. And so particularly in an age of, of climate change and an age when so much is happening with the environment, it seemed really crucial to me that I find a way to convey bigger messages that more people would hear. And now Superstorm details the nine days prior to Sandy. So why nine days? I was really interested in why this storm, which admittedly was the largest hurricane on a record for the Atlantic, but it wasn't a strong storm, uh, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, for, for several moments during its genesis, it wasn't even a hurricane. It was a tropical storm or a hybrid storm. And yet for all of this lack of, of power, the storm was unimaginably damaging, uh, both in terms of death, in terms of overall cost, in terms of really sort of affecting the U.S. psyche, um, and frankly, the Canadian one as well. You know, one of the deaths from Sandy was a woman in Toronto. And so I was really interested in how it was that this storm could have such a big impact. It seemed to me like we got a lot wrong both in, in terms of the science, but also in terms of the policy and how we responded to the risks associated with the storm. And so I really wanted to unpack why and why it had such a big impact. Well, when exactly was it that meteorologists started to realize that with Sandy, they may have a different kind of storm on their hands? It took a few days, actually. The storm began as a very classic late-season hurricane, um, and, and about uh, 10 days before the storm made landfall, one of the long-range forecasting models, the European model, suggested that the storm was going to make that bizarre turn into New York and New Jersey. And at the time, most meteorologists laughed. They thought, 
thought, well, that's impossible. And they said, you know, furthermore, the best way to know where a storm isn't going to actually go is to see where, you know, we say it's going to go 10 or seven days out because our, our track forecasting is still a very complex endeavor. And it really, we need to be about five days out to really get it right. So initially, they thought, well, this is going to do what every other hurricane does. It's going to move its way up the coast. It's going to hit one of those high-pressure systems that tends to hang out over Bermuda or the Bahamas. And it's going to, kind of like a pinball, shoot out into the Atlantic and everything's going to be fine. And it really wasn't until we got to about six days, five days before the storm made landfall that we started to see, first of all, look, this is not going to be a hurricane. This is going to be this weird amalgamation of storms, which makes it hard to predict. And it really does look like it's going to make landfall in, you know, the most populated city in the country. So um, that's when really the, I think the U.S. forecasters had to kick it into high gear, make a lot of really hard decisions. And we started to see this domino effect that began to affect everybody from, you know, entire communities to average citizens. So that was the National Hurricane Center that originally made that discovery? Yes. You know, the U.S. has a fairly Byzantine meteorological system, and that's one of the things that I really wanted to unpack in this book is, is, is why forecasting can be so difficult. And these all of these different branches are under the sort of larger umbrella of NOAA. And uh, what what we have is this sort of division of labor. And for the National Hurricane Center, at the time of Sandy, their mission was so narrowly defined that they could only issue watches, warnings, and advisories for storms that were purely tropical systems. Once a storm became anything other than a purely tropical system, they literally couldn't issue those watches, warnings, and advisories. And that's where the trouble really started, because Sandy, very early on, began to transition into this hybrid storm. And when that happened, uh, the National Hurricane Center realized that they weren't going to be able to get the information out to the American public. And so we saw this, this real sort of flurry of activity. Um, as one person at the National Hurricane Center said, you know, we had four really bad decisions and we had to make the one that was the least bad. And what they decided to do was hand over responsibility for the storm to these small regional National Weather Service forecasting offices. And these are offices that are staffed by very qualified, very good meteorologists, but they're staffed by maybe, you know, teams of five, for instance. A lot of these offices have um, holes in the staffing. They're understaffed, they're underfunded, and so they're not really up for the challenge that, for instance, the National Hurricane Center is. And then further complicating the situation is the fact that unlike Canada, where your meteorological system is directly tied to your national broadcasting system. So those messages get out right away. The U.S. doesn't do it that way. So even if you have a National Weather Service office issuing a watch or a warning or something like that, it's not directly tied to a media outlet. So people don't know. And so that there was a lack of communication that proved really deadly in this storm. There are so many issues involved with Sandy, but in addition to the fact that, and we're going to talk about this this a bit later, uh, the communication aspect of it, getting the data and actually being able to utilize the data is a problem as well. It is. And, you know, it's it's really interesting because... You know, hurricanes are the most powerful meteorological force out there. There's nothing like it, you know. And uh, yet for all of that, hurricanes are also the least known phenomenon in meteorological 
worlds, really. And and part of that is because so much of their genesis, so much of, of their building happens far beyond where we have devices that can measure them. It's really hard to get into these storms. Uh, we rely very heavily on the Hurricane Hunters, this amazing group of individuals, part of the U.S. Air Force Reserves. And they take these souped-up planes and they fly directly into the storms once they become tropical depressions. And without their data, we would all have a really difficult understanding of, of where these storms are going to go and to what degree they're going to affect places we, we don't expect them to, like Maine or Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. So very important work um, and still so much that we don't know. So you mentioned the computer models as well. Now, this is models plural. How many models are we talking about? Well, the National Hurricane Center in the U.S. uses about 40 models to do their forecasting, and that's pretty typical. When we look at things like the big snow event that happened uh, in January, for instance, we saw a lot of these models, and most countries have a model. Um, we use, like I said, about 40 of them. Some are very simple models that basically just work on a combination of past precedent and what we know about the immediate conditions. Others, like the European model, which uh, lately has been the forerunner and really the, the strongest and most dependable model. It uses a series of sort of algorithms and equations that take into account things like data gleaned from polar orbiting satellites, what's happening with radiation in the atmosphere, um, what we know about what's, what's happening with sea level, all sorts of data, very complex crunching of numbers. But it really comes down to probability. And I think as citizens... That's something we have a really hard time with. You know, meteorologists live in the world of percentages, and a 40% chance is a pretty good chance for a meteorologist. But as, as, as citizens, as lay people, we hear 40%, and we think, well, it probably isn't going to happen. So part of it is, is how it is that we all are going to come to an understanding of what that probability means in terms of the risk we all face with weather. And that's really what I wanted to explore in this book. Why is it so difficult to forecast the, the path of storms or what the storms are in the first place? That's right. And it's not just the path, but it's also the intensity. And they say that's actually, you know, sort of the hardest thing. And part of it is because, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up against what, what scientists call the limits of certainty. Um, and uh, if your listeners are familiar with the butter, butterfly effect, they know that, you know, one tiny little thing that happens somewhere else can have these wave effects that by the time it reaches us is much, much bigger. So, one tiny data problem that happens on day one of a forecast becomes exponentially so as the days go on. So if, for instance, there's a small uh, glitch in some data and that results in saying that the storm is at, uh, you know, X place and really it's at Y, and let's say there's a 25-mile gap between those two spots – each day that we go out with the forecasting, that's going to grow. So what was a 25-mile problem is now a 300, 400-mile problem by the time the storm is actually making landfall. And, uh, you know, we've seen really great advances um, in the last, say, 40 years in terms of weather forecasting. But it's it's always going to have this human element, this element of probability that isn't as certain as we really want it to be. And that's the real challenge for meteorologists is, is how do they tell us what their best guess is? And it's usually a really informed guess in a way that we're going to take it seriously. And that, so I think there's a lot of responsibility that we have as well. It's kind of fun to bash the weather person. You know, it's kind of a, a good 
parlor game, really. Um, but, you know, they are really pretty good at what they do. Um, and I think it's really beholden on all of us to really internalize the risk that they're conveying to us. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Catherine Miles, author of Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. So now what's the normal process with a a storm or hurricane? Something looks odd in the data, and then what? So the normal process is a really codified one, and what happens is the national hurricane in the United States is, is watching all of these systems. And I think what's really important to understand is the fact that this is not sort of defined by national boundaries. So it's not the case that, for instance, the National Hurricane Center is really only focusing on those storms that may be a threat to the United States. Meteorologists don't see these systems in terms of national boundaries. They all just really want to know what the storm is going to do and what it's going to affect, because if we look at a storm like Sandy, for instance, you know, Sandy first made landfall in Jamaica and didn't dissipate until it was well over Canada. So we're dealing with six, seven countries in a case like that. And so meteorologists in all of these countries are working really closely together. They're having hourly conference calls. They're really uh, compiling all of their data. Sometimes the United States National Hurricane Center has the best data. Uh, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're ri- relying really heavily on Cuba, Jamaica, Canada, England, for instance, in terms of where these storms are going. And then depending on what the storm is at that time, a whole different system of emergency responses kicks in. So most of these storms go through several different stages. They began as tropical depressions. Once they become what's called a closed system, so the, the winds are fully circulating, they become a tropical storm. Uh, once winds reach a certain level, it becomes a hurricane. And those distinctions are made largely because of the data that the hurricane hunters are gleaning as they're flying through the storm. They're measuring the winds, they're measuring the wind speed, the wind direction, and it's really based on that sort of eye-in-the-sky data that these distinctions are being made. And then every community has a different emergency management plan that goes into effect based on what the storm is. Um, you know, and that depends on things like when or if we're going to evacuate people, when or if we're going to call up power companies to help reinforce potential outages. Um, we're looking at surge data as well. And part of what was so complicated about Sandy was that Sandy wasn't falling into these easy categories of a tropical storm or a hurricane. It was this hybrid system. It was part nor'easter. And that led to a lot of really difficult and in some cases really bad decisions about when or not or if to take action. And I think that that's something that Sandy taught all of us is why we need to be so nimble in terms of what weather forecasts are saying and what both communities and elected officials and what also sort of average citizens need to do to keep ourselves safe, particularly as weather begins to change and begins to do things that we don't expect it to do, like hit Canada or New England. And that's what we're going to see a lot more of in the coming years. Well, in regards to that labeling issue, I have to say that was the part in the book that I, I think I was actually yelling at my book because that's why, <laughs> why is this not just petty semantics? I really want people to understand this. Why is calling a storm a hurricane or not such a big deal? Well, you know, and it shouldn't be, frankly. And there was a lot of pushback against the U.S. forecasting office because of that. And a lot of, for instance, the private meteorologists, people at really sort of well-respected forecasting offices like the Weather Channel and AccuWeather were saying, look, it doesn't matter. 
it doesn't matter if it's a hurricane or an ex-tropical system. What matters is we get people out of these areas that are going to get hit. So just keep calling it a hurricane. It's no big deal. And, and the meteorologists at the National Hurricane Center really pushed back against that. And they said, look, you know, we're scientists and we're public officials. And a lot of what we do is trying to build trust with, with the public. And if you want us to lie to them. You want us to tell them it's a storm, that it isn't, so that they'll take action. And there's one really great quote from one of the meteorologists at the National Weather Service. And he's like, look, if I'm your doctor, I shouldn't have to lie to you about what condition you have just to get you to take your medicine. Right. So, you know, for them, they were like, look, it should be enough that we're just saying this is a big, dangerous storm. But unfortunately, that's not really how it worked. And so by the time Sandy made landfall, the overwhelming majority of people in the path had no idea what was actually coming at them. And what we saw was these astounding rates of people who did not heed evacuation orders. So in New York and New Jersey, nearly 80% of people who were ordered to evacuate during the storm didn't evacuate. And that's a huge problem. That's part of why we saw the death toll that we did. It's part of why we saw so much damage. And it's damage that continues to plague Americans today. There are thousands and thousands of insurance claims clogged up in U.S. courts right now because insurance companies are saying they don't have to pay because the storm wasn't a hurricane. So these are people who have had their homes destroyed. Two and a half years later, they still haven't seen a single penny towards rebuilding. Uh, so it, be, it continues to be a very contemporaneous issue, even though this amount of time has already passed. In addition to the, to the insurance issues, which are large and very tangible, as you said before, changing the description from a hurricane means it becomes another agency's responsibility to forecast the storm as well, correct? That's right. And depending on how we forecast that depends on how we respond to it, really. And, and what we know is that these types of storms that don't fit into easy categories, natural categories, they're probably on the increase. And so really what I wanted to focus on with this book is, is getting us all to kind of reconsider how we respond to weather and the need for all of us to really invest in these paradigms that are going to allow us to be really nimble to speak to a potentially changing climate and changing weather system, to really kind of shore up the way we respond to natural disaster. Because what we know right now is that we're not necessarily all that good at it. Um, both of our countries tend to be much more reactive than they tend to be preventative. And I think Sandy really called attention to that. You know, Sandy broke so many rules in terms of its storm. Sandy affected so many people in, in both countries, frankly. Um, and it really kind of left us flat-footed and, and dumbfounded. And so I think we really have to reconsider all of these sorts of things, both in terms of how we do the science, how we respond to the science, what policies we have, so that the next time one of these storms hits, we will be prepared. And we will talk more about that after the break. You are listening to Science for the People, and my guest is Catherine Miles, author of Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. 
I'm Desiree Shell, and I've been talking with Catherine Miles, the writer-in-residence for Green Mountain College and the author of Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. You know, you, you mentioned the evacuations, and that was one of the things I found so fascinating about this book. Uh, how bad does weather have to get for a local government <laughs> to issue a mandatory evacuation? Well, prior to Sandy, it had to get pretty bad. But what we saw with the blizzard in January was it doesn't have to actually get very bad at all anymore. And I think that that really is because of Sandy. You know, with that storm, we saw two very distinct approaches. We saw uh, New Jersey, the New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, very early on making these very strong, almost kind of platitudinous statements like, get the hell off the beach. Don't be stupid. Um, and New Jerseyans, by and large, responded. We saw a much more sort of um, conservative approach in Mayor Bloomberg of New York City, who really felt like he needed to be certain before he called for evacuations. And so he, in fact, called for evacuations exceedingly late, so late, in fact, that a lot of New Yorkers who wanted to get out literally couldn't get out of the city. And that's, again, part of why we saw the death rate that we did in New York. And what social scientists tell us is that the average person needs about three days to really internalize a risk when natural disaster is is sort of coming at them. And so we really need those three days to understand that it's real, that it's going to affect us, that we need to make the decision to um, pick up our family and uh, maybe relocate a pet, uh, pile everybody up into a vehicle and, and get out and, and to be willing to sort of uh, assume the financial responsibility that comes with an evacuation. So it's not something that anyone, whether it's an elected official or, uh, you know, just sort of an average person takes very uh, lightly. And we really need the time to do it. Uh, we tend uh, historically and also right now, we tend to really underestimate the risk that natural disaster poses us. Um, if you ask the average person what the most sort of dangerous risk that faces them in the United States, uh, the average sort of U.S. citizen will tell you that it's either nuclear disaster or terrorist attack. And that's kind of absurd, um, you know, because both of those are actually really far down the list. And, and at the top of the list are things like cars, um, personal health issues and, and natural disaster. But but we don't see it. And, and you know, in the 21st century where, you know, we live in this world where we really think we've figured out nature, we tend to consistently underplay the danger that nature poses. And Sandy really showed how that can be a massive international problem. I found it really interesting because of the differing responses uh, from the different local governments. Now, weather agencies don't usually get involved in policy, right? They they just provide the information to the people that they need to, and then they step back. But they they were sort of forced to go a bit outside their scope with Sandy. And that was really interesting to me, too, was to really highlight this. I wanted Superstorm to be a very sort of human book. I really wanted to focus on the stories of individuals, either who had to make really tough choices, who found themselves really impacted by the storm. And one of the things that I I was really delighted to be able to focus on in the book is some of the really heroic actions that happened, uh, you know, sort of people who consider themselves sort of average people who were were sort of unintentionally called to do really heroic things. And some of those people were meteorologists, uh, especially U.S. meteorologists, who were willing to basically uh, forfeit their jobs and forfeit their reputations to try to keep people safe. And that was really interesting to me, people who, who felt themselves sort of called up 
to do these sort of Herculean tasks and who decided that the most important thing they, they had to do was really to be true civil servants in the sense of really serving the people that they um, – have in their constituencies and to take risks that involved their own jobs so that other people could stay safe. Can you give me an example of that? Sure. One of my my favorite heroes in the book is a guy named Gary Sazatsky. And he will tell you that he is just this sort of average Joe. um, And he is the head of the forecasting office uh, in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, a a great meteorologist and he takes his job really seriously and he's really earnest. Um, And as this storm was coming, he saw really quickly that action wasn't being taken, that both elected officials weren't calling for evacuation evacuations weren't doing things to protect protect the grid or public transportation. And so he broke ranks basically with the National Weather Service and he broke protocol, actual rules that are stated about how he should do his job. And he started issuing these very personal, very emotional pleas saying, look, please, please, please get out. Um, he published his personal home number, his cell phone number. And he's like, look, if you're thinking, if you're hesitating about not evacuating, just give me a call night or day. I'll help you out. This was not within the sort of accepted school of, of how to approach storms. He did it anyway, um, and he's become a real hero as a result. And I think he may change the way forecasts are delivered. I think that uh, meteorologists really understand that they get lost in their own science sometimes, um, and that that science doesn't necessarily translate to the people who are receiving the forecasts. He saw that. He was willing to step up. Um, and he saved lives. And I think that's a really wonderful story. And, and sort of touching on that, social media and the 24-hour news cycle also play a role here. Huge role. And they're really, for both good and bad, defining how we deal with all sorts of risk. And so what's happening in terms of weather is it used to be the case that we all, as, as sort of consumers of media, there was really only one place we could go to see, for instance, satellite images or, or radar images. And, and that was the national news, you know, and it happened once a day, maybe twice a day. And so that allowed our forecasters to really take the time to kind of get their ducks in, in a row and, and really figure out um, how and what they were going to forecast. But they get trumped a lot now by armchair meteorologists by people with Twitter accounts. Um, And so a lot of times now they find themselves in the situation where they're having to respond to the weather already out there rather than being the ones who create the news of the weather. And so sometimes they have to show their cards before they really want to. Sometimes they're having to sort of undo misinformation. Um, And they really hope, they desperately hope (laughs) that the reporters and the the media folks out there are going to stop with the hype because they feel like so much of the hype over these storms creates this situation basically where we're kind of crying wolf. And so when the next big storm actually comes, the people who consume the media are like, well, you know, they always say it's the storm of the century. So this one isn't going to be. So I think there's a lot of responsibility for, for journalists as well. Well, and that's that's one of the things that, that was really interesting is they're sort of forced to come out when Twitter and Facebook are going insane because the most up-to-date and accurate information about the weather systems are often found on Facebook or Twitter. 
That's right. And, you know, it's one of those things where, like, if you can't beat them, join them. What we see with a lot of our forecasting offices now is that they're really relying on things like Facebook and Twitter. And Sandy was the, one of the first storms that really, really used those social media outlets. We saw National Weather Service offices, their phones were so clogged, their email servers were so clogged, and in some cases, their computers went down uh, for an entire day. And so they could only use things like Twitter and Facebook to get those uh, forecasts out. We saw a sort of unprecedented number of hits on web pages. It really was the first storm where uh, the information was best accessed on social media. And I think that's going to become the precedent now for future storms. It's where we're all heading. Um, I think more and more and more we're using our, our phones basically as the way, as our outlet to the world. I talked to one forecaster who said that he was using a weather app from his local news station on his iPhone <laughs> to check the weather. And he was in a National Weather Service forecasting office. Okay, so people are in this situation where they're, they're getting sort of conflicting information, maybe from their local governments, and then there's another source of information uh, from the National Weather Services. And then you have these <laughs> Facebook pages and Twitter, and sort of everybody's conflicting as, as to what they're talking about. So when the mandatory evacuations were issued... How did people living in those areas respond? They were confused by and large. And, and, and it really took uh, a press conference uh, held by Mayor Bloomberg about 36 hours, even less than that, more like 30 hours before the storm made landfall, before New Yorkers, for instance, understood that it was a really big problem. And what we saw was this huge ripple effect. So Mayor Bloomberg waits days longer than other elected officials do to evacuate people. By the time he orders this evacuation, New Yorkers have fewer than six hours to get out of the city before public transportation shuts down. And if you've ever been in New York, you know that, you know, people, this is not a car culture, right? So very little time. And there were these incredibly tragic stories of especially people with functional needs, people who need assistance with transportation, people who rely upon anything from wheelchairs, people who are um, hearing impaired, visually impaired, they were really, really affected by this decision. There was one story in particular of a man who is wheelchair bound. As soon as he heard the evacuation, he did what he was told to do, which is to go out to the nearest bus stop to catch a bus out of the city. He was out there within probably 20 minutes of the evacuation order. He was scared to death that his electric wheelchair was going to short out or maybe even electrocute him in the rain. But he went out to this bus stop Five or six different buses went by. Not a single one of them could accommodate his wheelchair. And then the buses shut down and he had to go back to his house. And, uh, you know, he would have drowned had his neighbors not realized that his house was filling with water. They managed to break out some windows, you know, get him that way. And and he was part of a massive class action lawsuit, the third of its kind in the United States, where people with functional needs, disabilities, the elderly, have successfully sued their uh, cities, basically, and said, look, you know, your disaster plans do not accommodate us. And what we're seeing is, is we have this one-size-fits-all approach to disasters. Our cities, our towns, our, our municipalities um, have emergency management plans that they've taken a lot of time and developed in good faith, but they don't take into account so many possibilities. What we see is with Sandy, for instance, uh, nobody expected that generators would short out, so they didn't evacuate hospitals. Those hospitals went days without power. 
we think we're going to have things like mass transit and we don't. And so again, Sandy was a real litmus test for all of us in terms of how we deal with the disaster. And I think again, as citizens, it's really our responsibility to stand up and, and ask, you know, ask our town or our city, you know, what is your plan? Does it accommodate me? Does it affect, accommodate my grandmother or my neighbor? And, uh, do we have enough protocols in place to keep our, our, our residents, our community members safe? And those are the people that, that don't have a lot of choice whether to stay put. But what about the folks who, when faced with a mandatory evacuation, decide to apparently stand their ground? We all do this. <laughs> I think we really suffer from a lot of hubris in terms of weather. And part of that is because unless you've really experienced a natural disaster, you really can't internalize the danger. I was out in California for the book tour, and I talked to one woman who, uh, when she was about seven years old, she experienced an earthquake. And she said, you know, that's all it took. You know, for the rest of my life, whenever I even suspect that an earthquake is coming, I am, you know, in high alert. I personally have never experienced an earthquake, so I don't really know. Um, I grew up in Tornado Alley, so I know when the sky turns that particular shade of green that I need to get to my basement. But, you know, I admit that when Sandy looked like it might hit New England, I didn't do a lot. I pulled my sailboat out of the water. Uh, you know, I made sure that my dog sitter had some extra water, but that was really it because I thought, well, what are the chances? So I think it's really uh, becoming upon all of us to really start to, to say, look, this is a serious threat. One of my favorite quotes in the book comes from the head of uh, one of the sectors of the U.S. Coast Guard. And uh, he said, you know, Mother Nature plays to win, and she'll beat you every time. And I think until all of us actually accept that that is true, things like Sandy are going to keep happening over and over again. Okay, well, being that humans seem to be exceptionally crappy at risk analysis, how about you paint me a picture of what Sandy finally did look like as, as it touched down on land? The storm itself was massive. It encompassed over a million square miles. The the diameter of the storm was over a thousand miles. Huge, huge storm and messy storm. And I think that's part of what was so beguiling to the forecasters was by the time Sandy made landfall, it didn't look anything like a hurricane. And so nobody really knew what the effect was going to be. One thing that I think is really important for, for listeners to understand is these tropical storms, whether they're typhoons, whether they're hurricanes, we think the big problem is wind, but it's actually surge. And, and what we see with surge is um, very different types of surge depending on topography. So if you look at something like Katrina, we saw this very gradual upwelling of water that eventually overcame New Orleans' best attempts at barriers at the levees. We saw the breach, but the breach really took quite some time to happen. And that's because the Gulf Coast, the topography of the ocean floor is very uh very flat. It's a very gradual incline up to land. The tidal difference in a place like the Gulf Coast, marginal. If you look at the tides that we see in the Maritimes in New England, we've got these huge tides, you know, 10 foot, 14 foot tidal differences between high and low. We have very sort of stark topographies on the ocean floor. We have this immediate sort of uprising as the ocean floor makes land. And that makes for a very different type of surge. 
And so what people affected by Sandy said over and over again to me was like, look, by the time it hit, it was, it was like, it was honestly like being in a horror movie. Like it was like watching this tidal wave of water come and make land. Like one second there was no water. And the next second there was this 10 foot wave coming down our street, uh, you know, filling up cars, pulling houses off their embankments. Um, and I really wanted to try to convey that sense of horror and terror in the book. Everybody kept saying it felt like a horror movie. And so I wanted to write a book that felt like you were reading some sort of chiller as well, too. Oh, no. Success. Thank you. <laughs> You know, my agent, uh, who's wonderful, and, uh, you know, she's always telling me to really focus on character. And uh, for the longest time, I didn't know who the main character of this book was. And um, finally, I said to her, you know, I think the main character of this book is the storm. And uh, she's like, you know, you're right. It's like Jaws. It's like there's this weird menacing thing out in the ocean that we can't control, can't see it. It's coming at us. I'm like, you're right. And so I went back and I actually reread Jaws, the novel. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to convey this level of suspense. And so in a lot of ways, that was the model that I used to try to convey the science of the storm. Well, I am never going to be able to get the image of uh, a mother having, you know, the waves rip her children out of her arms out of my head. Well, this is the thing, right? You know, this is average citizens having to make these life or death decisions in the face of natural disaster. And sometimes we make great decisions. Sometimes where Gary says, ask you, we're the hero. Sometimes we make unimaginably traumatic, very, you know, just horrible decisions that are going to um, haunt us for the rest of our lives. And, and um, yes, it's sometimes hard to read, but I, I, I really wanted people to think about that. You know, where, where do you want to fall when the next, next natural disaster befalls you? You know, you are, what decision are you going to make? You know, and uh, we all have to do that. So I wanted people to see what, what, real humans go through when they have to sort of confront this kind of danger in their lives um, and, and really try to personalize it so that we all kind of understand. And I guess that's the fine line is we want people to be concerned about these kind of things, but we don't want them to panic because as we saw in the book, when, when people panic, they also make very poor decisions. Exactly right. And this really comes down to preparedness. And it sounds like the least sexy thing in the world, right? Disaster preparedness. But it's really important. And it's something that we all take for granted, I think. You know, in my, in my household, it's no different. We get really sloppy about these ideas. But, but what are we going to do? Do we have a plan in our own homes for what's going to happen if we don't have power for five days? Do we have a plan if the house is flooded, uh, if we all get separated? Um, and sometimes it takes a huge disaster like Sandy to really make us think through what's going to happen when that next blizzard hits and we go 10 days without power, or without water. Um, what are we going to do? And I think we really, you know, as families, as couples, as individuals, we need to sit down and say to ourselves, where is the nearest shelter that will take our dog or a cat? Um, what will we do if the kids are at school and we're at home and we can't get to them? We tend not to do that because we don't like to think about it. We tend not to do that because we think, well, that can't happen anymore. But Sandy showed us that it really can happen again. Okay, so post-Sandy, what do we see? I guess uh, let's start with what was the death toll? 
That is still a matter of debate, if you can believe it. Um, and I think it's going to be a matter of debate for some time. Right now, most people put it somewhere between about 170 and 200. Um, but what we're finding right now is that uh, there are a lot of sort of residual effects of the storm. And so a lot of people who study public health uh, have a lot of questions about which of the deaths we should consider as a result of the storm. And there have been some new studies, really interesting studies, that have shown um, that the death tolls for these events should, in fact, be much, much higher. That, for instance, um, in the months after the storm, the number of uh, very deadly cardiac events rises exponentially. The number of kidney events rises exponentially. So there's a lot of debate right now about whether we should include those deaths in the, in the overall death total for the storm. And what about the total cost of damage? Again, we're still really sussing that out. And I think that for people who don't live in the mid-Atlantic or the United States, and I count myself as well, it's really easy to assume that the storm is sort of over and done with. But but for people, especially in New York and New Jersey, they're still only now beginning to unpack the real total cost. It was just a month or two ago that Amtrak came out and said, wow, Actually, the, the damage to our tunnels is much worse. It's going to be two to three years before we're able to repair our tunnels. Like I mentioned earlier, there are thousands and thousands of insurance cases still held up in the courts. So it's going to be years, I think, before we know the true cost. Um, and it's certainly a cost much greater than it should have been um, and one much greater than a lot of people can bear. And after writing this book, how do you feel about storms? I take them much more seriously. I have a lot more respect for meteor. I've always been a weather fan. Um, I've always liked meteorologists, but uh, I have so much respect for the work that meteorologists do. And I have to say that, you know, I've become a little bit of a nervous Nelly. I see storms coming and I'm the one flying around our house saying, we need more bread. We need more milk. <laughs> uh, Catherine, thanks very much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. We've linked to Catherine Miles and her book Superstorm on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. After the break, Desiree is back and she digs into the relationship between a warming planet and the ferocity of hurricanes. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm here with Christopher Lancey. Christopher is the Science and Operations Officer at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Hurricane Center in Miami. Dr. Lancey's main expertise is in seasonal forecasting of hurricanes, in hurricane climate variability and change, and in testing applied research projects for possible use in weather forecasting. Good to have you here, Chris. Good to be here, and I'm glad to help out this morning. So uh, while I was reading Catherine Miles' book, Superstorm, uh, in, in which you were one of her characters, I came across sort of an aside about how you don't think that climate change causes an increase in extreme weather conditions. And since I thought that that was established science, I was very confused. So since I don't want to misrepresent you, could you explain that position? Right. Well, first off, I think climate change is definitely happening. And that man-made 
contributions from greenhouse gases, that is uh, carbon dioxide and methane, are contributing toward a warming of the earth and the atmosphere, uh, as well as the ocean. And and so that, that kind of the background premise that global warming is occurring and that man-made contributions are part of that. So when you look at that from the perspective of hurricanes, hurricanes are heat engines. So it does make intuitive sense that if hurricanes are uh, provided more uh, moisture or more heat that they could be more numerous or or stronger. But I think the important part is to try to quantify that. Are, are we looking at a really gigantic change already or something small now or small in the future? Because that distinction is very important. Because if it's a small change, then that's, that, need, that needs to be known. And when you look at the the theory of how hurricanes should be affected, as well as the climate models that are run integrated years into the future to try to simulate the Earth's uh, climate, what we see is a couple things. One is that hurricanes, even with a very strong global warming of, say, 2 degrees Celsius or 4 degrees Fahrenheit in the tropics, um, that hurricanes would be stronger, but only by a few percent. So something that would have said in a 100-mile-per-hour hurricane originally, by the end of the century, would be a 105-mile-per-hour hurricane. So that the changes for the wind speeds look to be fairly tiny, not just now, but a long ways into the future. And the second aspect, when you look at the climate model simulations, is that global warming should produce fewer hurricanes, fewer tropical storms, maybe even fewer major hurricanes. And that's a bit of a surprise, but it, uh, but it's not just the energy that's input into the hurricanes. It's the atmosphere above and what's called the wind shear that can tear apart storms. So it actually turns out that even though there should be slightly more energy for hurricanes to tap into because of global warming, that they encounter a more hostile atmosphere, more wind shear tearing apart the storms and a drier atmosphere in the mid-levels. So... That's the kind of expectation is that hurricanes would be affected by global warming. But the more important question is how much, and it actually turns out slightly stronger, by only a few percent, but a substantial decrease in the numbers of storms and hurricanes. So so I I wouldn't say I don't think hurricanes and global warming aren't related. I think it's important to understand how and how much. Now, we're talking specifically about hurricanes here, but can can we extrapolate to other kinds of extreme weather conditions? When, with regard to global warming and its effect on other phenomena like tornadoes and blizzards and heat waves, you really have to look at all the different phenomena separately. Um, so some might become worse, some might become less of a problem. And, and those, are, uh, those ones that I mentioned are kind of outside of my area of expertise. But one aspect that is important does also affect hurricane impacts is sea level rise. And we have been seeing a sea level rise of about a tenth of an inch per year, so about an inch a decade or two and a half centimeters. And over a a century, that's been about a foot. And so if we see an acceleration of that, um, say two or three foot additional sea level rise by the end of the century, even if hurricanes don't change, we would see more impact per hurricane with the storm surge flooding that could result. Um, so, and that, that's, that's, a, that, that's more of a, a certainty 
than some of the other aspects of, of hurricanes and climate change. Now, is this a controversial perspective in the climate science community at all? Well, what I'm providing is, is my opinion only. Um, even though I work at the National Hurricane Center and part of the Weather Service and NOAA, this is my perspective as someone who's been in the field for 25 years. And specifically, I've studied hurricanes and climate change that whole time. Um, what other folks depict in the field, uh, I, I'm not going to speak for them. Uh, I will point out, though, that there was a Nature Geophysics Review article a couple of years ago uh, that essentially came out with the same information than what I just provided, that hurricanes would be slightly stronger, they would be less numerous, and sea level rise would, would go up. So uh, I don't think what I'm saying in the field is that controversial. I think most researchers on hurricanes and climate change, I would think, would say something similar. But there definitely are scientists who would say that, that climate change is absolutely causing an increase in extreme weather events, correct? I'm not sure. There might be. Um, I'm just saying for me, with regard to hurricanes and climate change, that whatever effects we've seen so far are so tiny we can't measure. And even by the end of the century, assuming there's a substantial global warming, that we'd have slightly stronger hurricanes, but substantially fewer numbers of them. Okay, so if you're all working with the same science, assuming that there there are people that are sort of on the other side of the fence about about this linkage, could you say where they're wrong? <laughs> does that does that work? Well, it, to me, I, I I am a bit concerned when some groups or individuals might use hurricanes as a poster child for global warming. Um, to me, such a linkage is a bit emotional and not appropriate given the science that's been published on the field. And so when you actually take a look at what's been in the peer-reviewed literature, again, the vast majority suggests that whatever we've seen from hurricanes today is so tiny we can't measure any global warming influence. You're right. There's, there's definitely an emotional basis to these, these kind of positions. But so what kind of data would you have to see then to adopt the position that climate change is causing uh, an increase in extreme weather conditions? Well, one way we can examine the hurricane impacts is to look at the damages. You know, for example, the, the raw destruction that hurricanes causes to, uh, to buildings and infrastructure. And, and if you do that, you do see a, a very large increase over the last 20, 30 years especially in the amount of destruction that hurricanes produce. Um, and one can conclude, and I actually heard um, multiple fo folks mention that her, uh, global warming has caused much worse hurricane damages. But before you can look at the damage record and pull out any climate information, you have to remove societal effects. So specifically, there's a lot more people living in harm's way today than ever before. And the populations have, in some areas, gone up by a factor of you know, 100% right, in just a, a two decades. And much of Florida's is, uh, is, is in that, uh, that's true for much of Florida. But also there's increases in per capita wealth, that per hurricane, when a hurricane comes ashore, there's a lot more stuff to be destroyed than ever before. And if you use a, an index of wealth, per person you have twice as much stuff as your parents did when your parents were your age, and four times as much goods as your grandparents. So the combination of inflation, 
wealth and huge population increases really accounts for why we're seeing a big increase in the damage record over time. Once you take out those societal factors and really do an apples-to-apples comparison, what we see are periods of busy, quiet, busy, quiet for damaging hurricanes, but no trend. You can do the same thing for numbers of hurricanes. Just count how many hurricanes we've had. Um, And when you do that for the entire United States, going back almost 120 years, there's zero trend in the number of hurricanes. There's zero trend in how strong they are. Um, so we're really not seeing any substantial changes um, to hurricane activity that we can link to global warming at this point. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Christopher Lancy, the Science and Operations Officer at the National Hurricane Center, about climate change and extreme weather conditions. So have you been accused of being overly focused on semantics when talking about this topic? I I mean, if there's a realistic chance of a link between climate change and extreme weather, shouldn't we err on the side of acknowledging it and and hoping that it spurs people to action? As a scientist, I want to try to understand what has occurred in the past and what might occur in the future. As a homeowner, and a father of three living in Miami, I have a personal interest for understanding how hurricanes are changing because of how it's going to affect me and my family. Um, And so with that kind of context, I want to try to objectively look at what's been going on and what may occur in the future. Um, And so I, I would hope that I have an objective viewpoint on what is going on with hurricanes. And what that shows me in examining the observations is that there's been no change in hurricane numbers. There's been no change in the intensity of hurricanes. And changes in the future look very tiny. Um, And again, I would not extrapolate this to other extreme weather events, just talking about hurricanes. So, And as a scientist, I'm prepared to revise my hypothesis if it turns out with more information that, That is wrong. That's happened to me numerous times in my career, and I'm sure it'll happen again. But but this is what the observations are showing us right now. Um, As an example, Hurricane Sandy was put out to be um, the epitome of global warming with the impacts that it had. I I remember in uh, Bloomberg Business Week on the front title they had, it's global warming, stupid, with pictures of... Uh, the flooding that happened in New York and New Jersey. Right. When one actually takes a look at, well, is global warming likely to produce more Hurricane Sandys that will make that turn back to the coast, it actually turns out from study by Adam Sobel and company at Columbia University that global warming should produce less Hurricane Sandy tracks. Let me repeat that. Global warming should repro- should produce less Hurricane Sandy tracks than what we'd expect without global warming. And so, it, you know, it's it's very easy for some to make this link. Hurricanes are much worse today because of global warming. But, again, looking at it objectively and understanding how technology affects our observations over time, there's really nothing there. Well, then, from from the other perspective, do you think that, that the folks who are drawing a clear causal link uh, – are, are they doing damage to the public understanding of climate science? Oh, I would think so. I think that any 
exaggeration of the potential global warming impacts uh, when one should know better is, is very damaging to the science and for ones that would like to take precautions because of the impacts that global warming could produce. Uh, so I, yeah, I would, I would suggest that's, that's not appropriate, but, uh, you know, each person has to make their own decisions on interpreting the science. Um, but yeah, uh, to me, uh, if you're trying to ha spur people to take action because of global warming and you're using hurricanes as an example, I, I don't, in my view, I don't think that's appropriate. And doesn't this kind of disagreement just add fuel to the climate change denialists' fire? If climate scientists can't agree on this, maybe climate science isn't as as established as we were led to believe, that kind of thing. Well, again, I'm, I really would not like to speak for other folks. Um, I can give you my perspective, and my perspective is, A, global warming is real. We've seen a substantial warming of about a degree Fahrenheit over the last several decades, and that Global warming is being produced in part or in majority, I'm not sure how much, but there's a substantial contribution because of greenhouse gases, methane and carbon dioxide. Um, and so I would expect continued warming in the future. But then we need to try to go beyond that and say, well, what kind of effects does that produce? How does it affect you know, blizzards or heat waves or tornadoes, um, drought conditions, flooding? And you have to look at each of them separately. So all I can comment on is, is my look at what's going on with hurricanes. Is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, about climate change and or extreme weather? Yes. Uh, one big effect today uh, that has nothing to do with climate change but is extremely important is our huge vulnerability to hurricanes today. You know, don't let's not, in my view be overly concerned with what might happen in 100 years when we already have disasters on our hand that we have to deal with. And it's because of its huge numbers of people living in vulnerable areas from when hurricanes hit. You know, with Katrina, a thousand people lost their lives from a hurricane that everybody knew was going to hit Mississippi and Louisiana because either A, they decided not to evacuate when they should have, or B, they needed to evacuate and help never came. So you know, we have other cities where we can have a huge disaster, whether it's uh, Brunswick in Georgia, whether it's Tampa, whether it's Galveston in Houston, whether it's New England. And we need to be prepared now for hurricanes that can hit today, um, and we know we'll hit again. Uh, so as an example, we had, we had two hurricane seasons, with extreme impacts in the United States. Six hurricanes hit from South Carolina to New England in two years. And in contrast, in 2011 and 12, we had two. We had Irene and Sandy. But can you imagine a hurricane, two hurricane seasons where we had six hurricanes from South Carolina to New England? Well, you don't have to imagine it. It happened in 1954 and 1955. And it was tremendous destruction. So what we need to be prepared for now is hurricanes that will hit today and make sure people are safe. And that's our mission at the National Hurricane Center is to provide forecasts of tropical weather so that people can stay safe and, and safeguard their property. And part of that is spreading the public understanding of uh, the climate science around hurricanes specifically. Yeah, that's true. We want to understand hurricanes and make the, the public aware of the dangers today. Um, and again, uh, to me, climate change is, is very important. We need to better understand it and, 
and, and take some mitigation. But with regard to hurricanes, we have big issues right now today, not decades down the road. And we're contributing to that because having so many people living in the coastal areas, and that's true in the United States, it's true in Central America, it's true in the Caribbean, it's true around the world where we have huge population increases and the population is highest along the coast where the, you're most vulnerable to storm surge and people drowning. So that's our emphasis at the Hurricane Center is awareness and making sure that people listen to emergency managers and mayors and governors so they evacuate when, uh, when, uh, when a hurricane threatens. Thanks very much, Chris, for being here. Yeah, you're welcome, Desiree. You'll find links to Chris Lancy and the National Hurricane Center on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, do click the links to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, and to leave a comment on this or any other episode, and to subscribe to the weekly podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.